The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports heroin use has been on the rise in the last decade and is not limited to one specific demographic or geographic area. Nationwide, deaths from heroin overdoses have increased by 45% over the last eight years. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we'll look into why heroin use has become an increasingly common trend, especially among young adults. We'll speak with professionals in rehabilitation and emergency care about the risks associated with the drug and how addicts are getting help. And we invite you to join us as we discuss these topics and much more after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Recent data shows heroin usage has increased by 44% since 2007. The drug has touched every social class and cost the lives of many individuals, some of them famous and some of them not. This week on Noon Edition, we are going to be discussing the dangers of heroin and why it has become so common. We have uh, two guests who are gonna be joining us today. Jennifer Fillmore of Centerstone, uh, which provides substance abuse treatment, is here with us in the studio, and we're expecting Dr. Kevin Moore, an emergency medicine physician at IU Health Bloomington Hospital. If you want to join us on the program, you can call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome to the program, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, Mary Catherine. Hey, Bob. Good to be back with you. Good Good to to have you back. Yeah, summer's over. It's August Yep. Look out. Those leases are starting. I know. This is probably a pretty timely topic, though. It probably is, yeah. I mean, college students, I don't, I I guess that's one question I would just start off with is uh, when we talk about how, you know, heroin used to be sort of considered this really illicit drug that people would find in alleyways and in in like that was super hardcore yeah Yeah. super hardcore drug houses things like that i mean is this uh what kind of patients are you seeing at centerstone well you know there's really no standard for individuals who use heroin you're right back in the day the 70s the 80s it was kind of like the person on the street homeless dirty shooting up and that's the image that a lot of people have when they think about heroin but the truth of the matter is, in this day and age, anyone, anyone can be addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to get. It's very cheap. And the high is, you know, pretty awesome for a lot of people because it blocks the pain pathways in your brain. Mm-hmm. So you're not feeling any pain at all. I would also say that because the, the old uh, kind of thought process was about kind of the homeless shooting up and that kind of 
description that a lot of people don't know that there's treatment options. They don't know that there's treatment options available because they, they felt like it was a hopeless drug in a lot of ways. Um, but there is treatment available. Obviously, I work at Centerstone, which is a community mental health center, and we do have a full range of services available for folks there. Uh, there's also quite a few inpatient treatment programs throughout the state that would provide services for individuals who are using heroin. But I think one of the most important things to remember is that if someone has been using heroin for any length of time, there's a physical addiction that occurs. Um, so expecting someone just to stop using on their own is unrealistic mm -hmm. um, because physically they're going to be craving it and mm -hmm. they get really really people get really sick mm -hmm. uh -huh. well you know going back to the people that you see and you you know you said it's a wide range you, you mm -hmm. there's no stereotype for who's using heroin I mean the you know the idea I think there are we're in a college town so there are all sorts of stereotypes that go along with college drug use I, I think people understand drinking uh, marijuana use I think more and more people uh, think about cocaine use among college students but heroin is it a drug of choice of college students as you can tell either one of you I mean certainly mm -hmm. I, I think it is a drug of choice for some college students I think that you know when someone is inclined to try drugs and alcohol you know there's usually something that that sticks with you right mm -hmm. it's your thing mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the go to mm -hmm. and I think for a lot of folks you know if they've used heroin it it's their go-to. Mm -hmm. It feels good. Mm -hmm. And they'll continue to use. Okay. And like I said, it is so easy to get and so cheap that it's uh, finances don't tend to be a barrier for people. Mm -hmm. yep. Is it cheaper than it used to be? Or I mean, I don't remember thinking in terms of heroin being inexpensive traditionally. Is no. I, well, I mean, I think it probably costs more now than it did back in the 70s. And we were talking about it back then. But it's, it's very cheap to get heroin. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the other thing is, the fact of the matter is, is if you look at when heroin first kind of introduced itself, um, the purity was like 30 to 40 percent. Uh, the stuff they're getting off the streets now is 60 to 90 percent pure. So it increases the likelihood that someone can overdose from heroin. Mm -hmm. It also increases the likelihood that someone will be addicted more quickly. And there's really no way, just by looking at it, how pure it is or is not. There's is that no right? way. Mm -mm. Yeah. Now, is it just, um, I mean, of course, as we were mentioning earlier, we think traditionally of the shooting up. Um, can you snort heroin or? Yeah, you can snort it. You can smoke it. You can eat it. <laughs> you can inject it. I mean, basically, it can be used in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, we're being joined also by Dr. Kevin Moore from Great. the... Uh, IU Health Bloomington Hospital. He's an emergency medicine physician. So, Dr. Moore, have, uh, can you sort of describe what happens when you see patients in the emergency room that may have some sort of issue with heroin? Well, actually, there are a couple of things. Actually, I saw two people with heroin overdoses last night, as a matter of fact. Is that oh right? Gosh. Yeah. yeah it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty common. There are a couple of things that people present with who have heroin addictions. Number one is heroin overdoses. Mm -hmm. And uh, those people come in quite frequently. And there is an antidote for heroin if given in time. And for the vast majority of people, we're able to give the antidote in time and they do okay. Um, but probably four times a year, we'll have someone who dies from a heroin overdose that comes in at night on my shift. And that's half the shifts at night. So. If you think about the overall picture, it's pretty big. Mm -hmm. um, I think in Annapolis last year they had 110 
confirmed heroin deaths. So it's pretty uh, it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. People come in with decreased mental status, um, decreased respirations, which is how they basically lose their airway or stop breathing, and that's how they die eventually. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, then, of course, you see people who have the effects from uh, from shooting the drugs, which themselves can cause all kinds of effects from contracting uh, HIV and other uh, bloodborne illnesses to having uh, necrosis of their their extremities when things become infected. And you see a lot of drug-seeking behavior. A lot of people come in and they complain of a pain of this sort or that sort, but really their goal is to, is to obtain uh, opiates. Mm. In general, um, we, fi- we have found that there's been a, a rapid increase, but a lot of it has coincided with the number of uh, opioid-related uh, deaths. And it kind of goes back to patient satisfaction scores. Mm. Emergency departments have been a big culprit of this, and it has to do with um, hospital administrators want to see high patient satisfaction scores. If people come in and they want pain medications, then they're likely to give high satisfaction scores. And if they don't receive those medications, then they're likely to give poor satisfaction scores. So we uh, went, uh, we sort of, gone through a pendulum over my 20-year career from only give them when necessary to give them out like candy to now, as the feds are, are recognizing how big a problem it is, uh, give them when necessary. And as they become less easy to obtain via doctors, I things like oxycodone and hydrocodone, Percocet and, and, and Vicodin, and uh, then they are going back to heroin, which is cheaper to mm-hmm. obtain on the street. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, the drug-seeking behavior there are the side effects that have to do with the physical harm you cause yourself by injecting heroin. And then you see the people who come in with respiratory, distression, uh, respiratory depression uh, and uh, loss of airway who may or may not die, depending upon if you catch them on time. Mm-hmm. Jennifer said there's no uh, typical profile, if you will, of a heroin user. What has your, been your experience at the hospital? I, I, I don't know whether I can say there's a typical profile of the heroin uh, user. I think there's a typical profile of the heroin, of the person who comes to the emergency department who has, who has overdosed on heroin. And in this town, those people, by and large, are not the college students. That's not to say they aren't using it, but by and large, the people that I see in the emergency department at night are not the college students that come in. Mm-hmm. They are people who are in the community um, who may or may not have a job, mm-hmm. but a lot of them do, actually. A lot of them work. And... Um, they just, for whatever reason, developed an addiction because people try drugs for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, our phone numbers are 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We're talking about the increased use uh, and abuse of heroin in, uh, well, in, in the United States, including in Bloomington, Monroe County, and any other county that may be within listening area. So if you have any um, any questions, any experience, you want to know, you want to look for signs or whatever, we have two guests with us in the studio, Jennifer Fillmore is from Centerstone, which provides substance abuse treatment. Dr. Kevin Moore is an emergency medicine physician at IU Health Bloomington Hospital. Dr. Moore, when you have someone who presents at the emergency room with obvious heroin issues of one kind or another. Are you obligated to report them to law enforcement, or how no. does that work? No, there's no obligation for that. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, there's a, there are 
there are, are there's a law called HIPAA, which has to do with patient privacy. And so um, you really can't report it mm. because that would be a HIPAA violation. Mm. And there are stiff penalties as well as you can be sued in civil mm. court for that. Are you allowed to um, channel that person to a social worker or somebody who says, you know, look, you need to get into treatment. Here are some options. Or how does yes. that work? Yes, we have, a, we have in the emergency department uh, access, 24-hour access to people who are trained in psychiatric issues as well as drug uh, issues who can evaluate the people in the emergency department and provide them with uh, referrals if if necessary, admission if required. Um, and of course, if someone comes in and they have to be admitted, which is very rare um, because for the most part, uh, people with heroin, heroin is a fairly short-acting drug. You give the antidote, you may watch them for a couple of hours and then they're able to be discharged medically. Mm -hmm. Then at that point, uh, you can have a discussion with them about what they'd like to do whether they like to see an access counselor and so on. And some people choose to do that. Mm -hmm. I had uh, one individual two years ago who came in with heroin overdose and he had a rare complication, which is uh, sometimes people go into pulmonary edema where their lungs uh, become f full of fluid and their oxygenation level drops. And uh, he came in and he had classic heroin overdose uh, symptoms. We treated him, reversed him, he awakened, but he has had trouble breathing. And so he had gone into this rare condition. He was admitted to the hospital. And I saw him about a year later. He had come in as a visitor with another patient, and he said that, that that scared him to death. He sought counseling, he went through treatment, and he hasn't used since then and has no desire to use. Mm -hmm. So um, there are avenues for, uh, for treatment uh, in the community, but people have to obviously want the treatment, as mm -hmm. Jennifer knows, and unless someone really wants to stop, then there's not much you can do about it. Now, you said, you said you had two different patients last night. I mean, how much can you tell us, you know, obviously no names or anything, but how much can you tell us about you know, how you treated those patients? You pick one or the other and you just tell us about the case and what happened from the beginning to the end of the evening. Uh, pretty simple on both of them. They came in um, having been uh, at someone called mm -hmm. and they, were, uh, they had diminished mental status. By the time they arrived to the emergency department, both of them had trouble with their airway. They were losing their airway. There's sort of a classic, uh, they have pinpoint pupils, diminished respiratory status, uh, diminished mental status, and this sort of, it's called a toxidrome. That's an opioid toxidrome. There's an, an, an antidote for that. We give it, it's called Narcan. And we give it to them and then they wake and, and then it's, it's almost like magic. You give it to them and 20 seconds later they wake up and they start talking to you. And uh, then you sort of watch them uh, and some, because, the the Narcan and the and the the heroin have so they sort of have the same half lives, so sometimes mm -hmm. they require a dose or two of, of Narcan. You can't really be sure. So you watch them for a while, and in both of those cases, they were watched. They um, were past the window that the Narcan would have still been effective. They were awake and alert, and uh, they were offered counseling services. They declined, and they were discharged. Mm -hmm. Do you expect to see either one of them back? Oh. Who knows? <laughs> okay. I mean, I, the question is just about, I guess, return visitors. If you treat one person, do you treat people often? Often see uh, alcoholics who come quite frequently, the same ones. In terms of heroin, not so much. I don't think we see much of the, the repeat uh, overdose of that. Well, that's a lot less dramatic than John Travolta jamming that hypodermic needle <laughs> into Uma Thurman's chest. So I'm glad it's uh, and, a lot more civilized. And not than as that. cool. Not no, not as cool, <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I would just add that um, 
yes, it's nice if someone's motivated for treatment, but you don't have to wait till someone hits bottom in order for them to actually be receptive to treatment. And in fact, what happens at the hospital could be the first intervention step that happens to get someone to start thinking about it. Right. You know, not everybody comes to treatment in the action stage wanting to change right now, right? Mm -hmm. Some people come in, they're like, hmm. I don't know, my, my boss is on my, you know, he's on my case, and I went to the hospital last night, and they said maybe I should come here. They're ambivalent about the possibility of treatment, but the counselors at Centerstone could work with that. You know, you work with people where they're at, their motivation level. Um, so I think that's a myth that a lot of people have is wait till the person hits bottom. And what is bottom? Bottom could be death for some people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Losing your family, losing your job, losing your home. So then you have more uh, reasons to want to use. I, say, I certainly wouldn't want to wait, right, until yeah. I hit bottom at that point. But, yeah, there's a lot of people that think that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, this has been you – know, we've had a couple of very high-profile heroin deaths. Uh, Corey Monteith, a uh, young man that was on Glee, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, an Academy Award-winning actor. <laughs> and I think that maybe woke a lot of people up to the fact that heroin is, is a, uh, a lot more prevalent than maybe people thought. Um, is this – uh, again, is that your experience, or do you think that I mean, is, is this? It's been getting a lot more media attention. Let me put it that way. Since these two celebrity deaths, but is that just because people are paying more attention to it now? Has this trend been going on for quite a while? The trend's been going on for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but I do think that when a high-profile person um, overdoses from any anything, anything actually negative happening, arrest, you know, drinking and driving, it, it does shed some light on what's going on and it may make people more aware of what's happening in their own communities. What I found extremely um, sad about both those cases is um, they had both received treatment at different points. Um, Hoffman, Hoff, he mm -hmm. had 20 years of sobriety at one point. Mm -hmm. So that really just shows you how powerful that drug can be to lure people back in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. Uh, you can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Is there anything you can tell us about how one might start using heroin? I mean, the... First you find a dealer. Is it a high school issue? I mean, are people are younger kids now starting to find people who will provide heroin for them? Is this a, a high school issue, a college issue on up, or you know, oh, where is it starting? In fact, when I, when I knew it was coming to do this, I tried to find some statistics. Mm -hmm. And the Indiana Prevention uh, Resource Center right here in Bloomington, um, they collect all the data from the high schools in Indiana, and they actually post that. And um, it's 12 and up. 12 it's years, 12 old, years and up. old and up. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was a low percentage when I looked. It was like 1% or 2%, but it was a percentage, and it was on there. Mm -hmm. Wow. So it, since it's so young, 12 and up, I mean, what, you know, what should parents be looking for if, you know, is this, does it present, would parents notice anything different than, you know, they might smell, you know, somebody smoking marijuana in their bedroom or something or see beer bottles lying around? I mean, what, what are they going to, are there specific things they should look for in their young people? 
I think in general, anytime you, you look at drug addiction in adolescence, there's there are signs. People change their behavior. They change their regular routine. People who are previously doing well in school stop doing well in school. Uh, attitude changes. They have things that are behavior that seems unusual, and when you ask them about it, they become very defensive, um, and uh, it doesn't fit. They start to lie about their whereabouts and activities. Mm-hmm. Classic stuff. Of course, that happens in adolescence just because they're adolescents as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. But I think that 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 number, while there are adolescents who do use heroin, that there are many avenues to beginning to use heroin. And um, one of those is that sort of you're an adolescent and everyone else is doing it or some people you know are doing it. So I'll do it too, sort of on a dare or whatever. But then there are people who um, become addicted to opioid pain medications that are prescribed and then they stop having access to those and they go to heroin because it's easier to buy. Mm-hmm. It's easier, it, it's cheaper. It's easier to buy once they find access to a dealer or a source. And so you have that, that other group of people that started off uh, with you know legitimate pain. Um, and I'll give you an example, just Charlie Parker, you know, who's well-known, you know, he, he, he was in an automobile accident and he was given <coughs> opioids in the hospital and, and when he left, you know, he was an addict and ultimately died at 35 from heroin overdose, well, complications of heroin overdose. So um, I think it's, that's a, a common pathway as well. And you'd be surprised the number of, of functioning adults who do heroin as well. I see many people. I yeah, I mean, I'm wondering deaths. about that. I, I think about the movie Ray, and you know, they portrayed him mm-hmm. as being quite highly functional throughout, and and having a long-term heroin pattern of heroin use. Um, so, uh, probably both of you are familiar with people. How do they describe the high? Um, is it just kind of a mellowing out, or is it strictly pain related? I, I assume it's not strictly pain related, or else people wouldn't do it quite so recre- recreationally. What's what's it like? What's what's all the hubbub? You're just you're out. You know, you're you're numb. You're emotionally numb. You're physically numb. Depending on how much you take, you may not out, which is not going to be functional. You're not mm-hmm. going to be singing music when you're doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really think it's two-part, though, and the doctor can probably uh, talk about this, but the, the physical addiction is there, the physical addiction. The emotional addiction comes in when I'm starting to use it as a coping skill, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I got in a fight with my wife. Eh, I'm going to go use. I'm going to go get some heroin. Um, you know, I lost my job. I, it, it, and those two things combined then is really when you get to that point where oh, this person's full on, right? This person cannot stop using heroin without some type of intervention mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have an interesting uh, personal story about, about opioid use. When I had my appendix out, um, my surgeon prescribed uh, Percocet. Mm-hmm. And I was bound and determined not to use Percocet. And two days after the surgery, it hurt just to turn over to grab a, um, water from the nightstand next to my bed hurt so much that I, I would literally cry out in pain. And at that point, I, I gave way and I took a Percocet. And I felt so good afterwards. The pain went all the way. And I felt so good that I did an hour on the Stairmaster. <gasps> wow. No, you didn't. I did. Oh. And I realized this is really great. This, this oh, takes away my pain. I feel no. great. It's like a, I didn't have surgery. 
So I started taking it, you know, every six hours. Mm-hmm. And after about six doses, I realized something. Every time I took one of those, not only did my pain become better, but I felt great. You know, all the little worries that we carry, you know, I was you know, people had to cover my shifts, mm-hmm. I was missing income, the kids are doing this, and little, you know, just worries. They all literally went away. I, I remember at one point saying to myself, <clears throat> I don't know why I even worry about these things. Life is great. <laughs> <laughs> literally, I said, I, I said that to myself. And that's when I realized, you know, after about six times, I realized, you know, you know, every time I take these medications, not only is my pain better, but I was euphoric. Yeah. And I think a lot of it starts off with a sense of euphoria. And then, of course, as your body becomes used to it, you need more and more, and uh, you run into all the social complications related to it and so on. So after about six doses, I said, I realized what was going on. I said, I don't want to do this, and I threw them away. And, and, but I think it, a lot of it starts that way. Um, this is, wow, that it, had to be a scary euphoria. moment for you, especially as a physician. We tend to think, you know, one way or another, physicians have more access. Maybe I'm sure they've cracked down on that, but still, I, I would imagine it's a possibility that physicians would have more access to to that sort of thing. And so, wow, I, you know, that had to be quite an eye opener for you, and also uh, make you feel empathetic for other yeah. physicians who end up in that boat. And I know that happens. Yeah, it definitely was a. It, it made me a better clinician. And it, uh, it taught me a lot about sort of how people go down that pathway, which right. is why I'm very careful. Mm-hmm. My scores aren't, uh, aren't as high because I really talk to people about, about you know, these medications and how dangerous they are. And they really should be used only when necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We tend to want to have a, a, a painless society, but there's, there's a cost for everything, including having no pain. Right. right. Well, good for you for being self-aware enough, though, to realize the the entire approach or effect it was having on you, uh, not just physically yeah. but mentally. And, and, and so what Jennifer was saying was, I could easily see that you know if I kept those around, when things were, you know when something bad happened, had an argument with my wife or whatever, I could easily see myself. I'll just take a Percocet. I feel yeah. better. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think point. that's that's how you go down that road. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. I want to say we have a, a question from Casey on Twitter we're going to get to right after the break. Uh, we're talking about heroin, the increased usage of heroin uh, all around the United States, including here in Indiana. Um, so you're listening to Noon Edition, and we will be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Communications. More information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're talking about the increased use of heroin and all the issues and problems and concerns about that. Uh, We have two guests with us in the studio, Jennifer Fillmore of Centerstone, which provides substance abuse treatment, and Dr. Kevin Moore, who's an emergency medicine physician at IU Health Bloomington Hospital. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can contact us via Twitter at noon edition. So, So, uh, well, no, Casey uh, wrote in on Twitter. I couldn't tell if you were going to do it or not, Bob. Sorry. Uh, What difference would it make if the nalox? Now I'm not going to say the name right just for that. Naloxone. Naloxone. Thank you. Drug would be easier to access. What difference Um, would it make? Would it would it be? You know, I I don't know the answer to that. I mean. I think they've done some trial studies and they've been sort of, they've had very results. There's some talk of having, for example, uh, police officers carried with them. Um, and I was actually talking with a colleague about that last night and mm-hmm. we both agreed that it probably wasn't a good idea. Yeah. Um, so the positive upside would be that if you are uh, amongst a group of people who are doing heroin and one of you stops uh, breathing, you give the antidote and they wake up and all is good. That's the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. The worst case scenario, of course, is that you start to feel that you're, uh, you're, um, um, I'm blanking on the word, impervious yes. to the to the effects of, of heroin, and it gives you may give you a sense that uh, you have free license to use it because there's that antidote right mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. and that may be more difficult. Another problem is that uh, it is very typical when someone is. Is uh, in is an extremist from heroin overdose, and you reverse them that they become very agitated and combative. And uh, when I think about police officers um, having someone who has gone from being uh, virtually not breathing to agitated and combative, then I think of uh, possible bad outcomes mm-hmm. from the reaction, the interaction between those two individuals. Uh, so uh, overall, I I don't know what the effect would be to make that just readily available, um, but. My gut tells me it wouldn't be a good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, we we now I think in 2012 for the first time, the number of deaths in the United States that were uh, that were from prescribed opioids exceeded the number of deaths from automobile accidents. Yeah. And so I think that in a society where where that's happening with more frequency, um, that we really need to focus on on using these medications properly. And I think that eventually that will, will trickle down to the, to the generation that comes afterwards and they just won't have that, that pathway to ever go down the opioid pathway. Mm-hmm. We have a phone call now from uh, Owen County. Rose is on the phone, Rose. Hi, um, yeah, I've got a couple of comments. Um, I'm not a heroin user, but I have had some experience with roommates back in the 1970s when I was living in uh, Boulder, Colorado, which was, you know, kind of a hippie center back then. Still is, probably. Anyway, uh, early in the program, someone asked what kind of behavioral things, you know, parents could watch for to uh, maybe, you know, clues that their child might be a heroin user. And these roommates, all of them that were doing heroin regularly and 
<clears throat> it's probably common knowledge that, that opiate drugs do cause a person to be constipated. That's why paragoric, you know, was used for diarrhea. But anyway, these people being constantly constipated, you know, were always vomiting. I mean, all the time. And I don't know if that's typical of regular heroin users, but it certainly was typical of this group of people. My other comment is that also way back in the late 60s when I was, you know, a young person, I uh, had the good fortune to learn the technique of transcendental meditation. And now that I'm a senior citizen and have fairly chronic pain from arthritis, um, and I think it's been pretty widely shown that those sort of techniques are very effective at pain management, um, these, you know, mindfulness sort of uh, techniques, and that certainly is the case with me, that, that uh, it's a technique that the Maharishi used to call feeling the body, but, you know, it's like not fighting the pain, it's like, you know, embracing the pain, and it's amazing how much that can reduce chronic pain. So those are my comments, and uh, All right. I guess I'll take your your discussion off the air. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. All right, any uh, reaction to what Rose had to say? I think she had uh, very good points. Uh, in terms of vomiting, I, I don't know. I, I, that may or may not be true. Um, I don't have much experience with that. When we talk about it in the literature for emergency medicine, we really talked about the, to the toxidrome, and so mm -hmm. um, that very well may be true. Um, as far as the, the use of alternative uh, techniques for pain control, I'm all for it. Uh, and certainly the, the pain, pain and how you respond to it internally uh, is, is pretty individualized. And so any technique that can allow you to deal with it better and avoid opiates uh, is a good thing. All right, so we have two more phone calls. Uh, let's go to Mitchell first. Stan Sam is in Mitchell. Sam? Hey, how we doing? Hey, we're good. Hey, I have like, I've had like three back surgeries. Um, I've still got a lot of pain. I mean, what does a guy that still wants to get out and work, and but he has to live with this pain, what does, what does the doctors do for them? I mean, all the drug heads are making it hard for us to, you know, manage our pain so we can get out there and actually work for a living. But it seems like, you know, the doctors still hand this stuff like candy to them. I mean, where do we, where do we turn to for help? I guess a good question, Sam, and it might uh, follow along with the whole idea of prescription drug restrictions and how you get the drugs you need and painkillers you need. So either one of you have a, some advice for Sam? Yeah, I think that the uh, that he's makes a very good point. I think that ultimately there are pain specialists. There are people that are trained in dealing with pain, and they use multiple modalities: uh, steroid injections, physical therapy, sometimes maintenance dose of opioids, uh, which um, which allow people to function. The problem, of course, is that th th some of those people have. Uh, become notorious for overprescribing mm -hmm. to the point of going to prison for it. So ultimately, it would be great if there were, um, and, and there are some pain uh, management uh, doctors in, in, in the area. I don't know their practices. We, they, we, we don't speak to them in the emergency department. But finding a good pain management doctor, uh, I think, is a, is a 
good first step because for those people, once they determine that you really do need opioids because you have pain that's not going to go away, then they can put you on a regimen that allows you to go about your, your daily living and, and go to work if you want to go to work, which is great that Sam does. Um, I think it's probably the big first step. In the emergency department, people in that situation might come through with breakthrough pain, and they will typically have a contract with their pain doctor, um, and they the pain doctors don't like us to become involved in in pain care unless it's... You know, obviously, if you have chronic back pain that requires you to be on a patch and some breakthrough pain medications, but then you break your femur, you know, certainly you're going to need pain medications. But um, having a pain doctor who knows you well and uh, can uh, use all the modalities available is probably the best step for someone like Sam, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Jennifer, anything from the uh, mental health perspective? No, I agree with the doctor. I think that there are probably some pain doctors that are good. Um, although I would do my homework <clears throat> before I went to any of the pain doctors. Um, I do think that there are some alternative um, methods that may work as well, as the, the caller earlier was talking about. Um, and, I mean, here's the thing with the prescription drugs, though, and we really haven't talked about this. Uh, you know, they're putting a lot of restrictions on what doctors can and cannot do. Some would argue to the point where they almost can't do their job. Um, and some would argue that it's needed because prescription drug abuse is, is out of control. Um, so, I mean, I think being open and honest with your doctor, having one doctor, um, you know, there's a way that they can work with you if the, if the pain is ongoing. But there are other methods that are used. And I'll, my husband, he has back pain. He takes Vicodin for back pain as needed. And, um, like, recently, you know, we've gotten... Uh, we got a, um, an order in the mail for him to go have a drug screen as a result of new practices that are going on uh, with the new drug laws. Um, so I think it's going to weed some of the folks out, and I think that's the point. It's going to weed some of the folks out that have really been uh, taking advantage of the doctors and the pain medications, which is what you mentioned earlier. There, there, there are you know a handful of people, kind of, that have abused the system, and it does make it more difficult for folks that have legitimate physical needs. All right, Sam. Hey, thanks a lot for the call. Hi, you're welcome. Okay, thank you. Uh, if you have a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. That's if you have a question, not if you have a call. All right, so we have another caller on the phone. So uh, we're going to go to James, and James is here in Bloomington. James? Yeah, Hi. Um, let me see. I kind of got in on, on the middle of this conversation. So if I've made a wrong assumption here, tell me so. But if I understand what I heard, the gentleman who, uh, um, oh, um, who uh, um, talked about uh, the restriction of, of this drug, and I, I can't pronounce it oh, um, either, that, that would bring a person back who had overdosed. Um, you know, um, made it. Oh, 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 so he was conscious again. Is uh, the, the, the the gentleman who answered that question um, said the reason why it should be restricted is because the person might become combative. Yeah, this is uh, our uh, the person who answered is Dr. Kevin Moore, an emergency okay. medicine physician at uh-huh. IU Health Bloomington Hospital. My. I, that kind of upset me a little bit because I, if a, if 
if it's a choice between a person becoming combative or dying, that doesn't seem like that's a very good good trade-off. And I just wondered if he could explain his reasoning behind that a little bit. I, I, I would think that 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 this drug should be more available, save more lives. And if if his only reason is because this person is going to be combative, it's, I think is a little bit weak. Well, I understand your concern, but that's uh, I think you did probably come in sort of towards the middle of that conversation. Um, one of the points that I made was that the combative part, particularly uh, focused on the notion that police officers should carry the the medication. Uh-huh. And my I'm, and my feeling was that if you have people who are non-combative and you give them Narcan and they become combative in the presence of a police officer, that that's a kind of a setup for a bad situation. A police officer can easily have access to to uh, to emergency providers who can administer the medication, um, and they can provide. Police officers are trained in CPR and airway protection until that time. Uh-huh, so that's my personal feeling. As okay. and I also mentioned that there have been studies, they're doing pilot studies all around the country regarding this sort of thing, and the results so far are, are inconclusive. And uh, So I don't know okay. the right answer to it, but that's just my personal okay. feeling about it. Okay. Well, I, I, but then an officer could also be trained to, uh, to handle the combativeness in a, in, a, um, in a way that that would not hurt the person. I would think. Okay, great. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, James. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for your interest. Thank you. All right. You have, we have about 10 minutes to go, so 855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, I want to ask uh, both of you, but Jennifer in particular, because you're in on the substance abuse treatment end of it. You know, again, I'll go back to, you know, the old-time movie. Somebody gets – somebody has found out that they have a heroin addiction, and we see these scenes of this horrible withdrawal that's going on in some enclosed room. I mean, can you talk about about treatment for heroin addiction and how – you know, what what's the reality? Take us through situation? somebody kind of coming through your door and yeah. then go, take us through the process. I'm not going to use Centerstone as an example with this because we don't have a detox, mm-hmm. okay? But mm-hmm. I've been working in the field for 20 years um, and and when you when you mentioned that kind of the 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 common thought about withdrawing I thought about the basketball diaries uh-huh. with Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. right and it was extremely painful withdrawal but the reality is when someone comes in um, for detox and, and detoxes are different okay some detoxes use suboxone suboxone is similar to methadone and it can be used to step people down where it's lessening the um, withdrawal. But typically the withdrawal is flu-like, 10 times worse than the flu you've had, let's say that. Your stomach's cramping, you're vomiting, you're disoriented, you're sweating. That, that, is, that is a reality. That is a reality. Now, in this day and age, we do have medication, right? When people go to detox, it helps lessen those symptoms. But um, in that three to five days sometimes, I mean, it really... 
And, and so what I'm talking about is different than what the doctor's talking about, too, with the injection. I mean, there's really two different conversations mm-hmm. in a way. And I, I guess I want to make sure people understand that, too, that that's not an easy fix. It's not like if someone needs to detox off of opiates, they could just go get a shot in the chest. <laughs> I'm not going to quite cover it. Um, but I do think that some of those images, um, although maybe extreme, if you see them on the big screen, um, they're pretty reflective, actually. Um, so some people need detox. There's also a step down usually with treatment. So some people might go into a residential treatment facility. Um, there's very few of those around still, um, but there are some. Um, and some may choose to come to a communal health center uh, like Centerstone to receive outpatient services, supportive services, um, because just the detox alone, that all that does is just take the, all that does is just stabilize you, so you're you're not the opiates are not in your system anymore. Just trying to make that as simple as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go through detox and you leave detox and you do nothing else, very few people can just stop using. Honestly, if you step over that threshold of physical and emotional addiction, being able to go, oh, I just don't think I'm going to do that anymore, likely won't happen. Um, you're going to need therapy. You're going to need support. You're going to need structure. Um, you're going to need to surround yourself with those folks that are going to be there to encourage you through your recovery process. How, how addictive is heroin compare, in comparison to other drugs? I mean, we hear about, I mean, it's like, you know, one time you do heroin and then you're on heroin and we hear things like that about meth and you know that the doctor mentioned that that once you are on the drug and you're becoming addicted then you need more and more as you go along you know i don't know whether there have been any studies regarding that show compared for example heroin to meth Mm -hmm. um if i had to guess i would say meth is more addictive than heroin Mm -hmm. um but every individual is different and um People need the high that they need, the sense of euphoria, and then sort of the sense of sedation and numbness that heroin provides is different than the the sense of, of euphoria and then the sense of of excitement and and uh, just sort of the continued euphoria of methamphetamine, for example. Mm-hmm. So people have different emotional needs. Um, what makes one person feel great freaks another person out, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, before I go to our, uh, we have a phone call. Before I go to the phone call, though, um, I wanted to ask about, you know, we've talked about how, you know, we've, we have talked about the euphoria and how, you know, when you were on um, Percocet, it made you feel good. I mean, what what are the um, the damaging effects to long-term use of heroin? In terms of phys- physical? Mm-hmm. You know, um, physically, uh, if, if, you, if you avoid, you know, the... The, the bad infections and avoid contracting um, uh, bloodborne illness and overdose and, and overdose. You know, if you if you kick the habit, um, I don't know that there are many long-term effects to it. I don't think that there's been any proof that it causes, you know, early dementia or any long-term cognitive defects. I, I imagine that it could simply because if you do it enough, there may be times when you become hypoxic and therefore you take small hits to your brain because you're epoxic and uh-huh. that could contribute to some long-term effects but the 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 drug itself the opioid itself i don't think has any uh, known uh, long-term effects mm-hmm. so it's the it's the addiction to it and the need for it 
and the possibilities of you know overdose <clears throat> and those kinds of things. It's hard to imagine hepatitis, hepatitis right? Yeah. HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have someone who's you know really using heroin IV is the way they do it, you know, they intravenously, then the chances of them contracting is very high um, because they share needles. I mean, Uh let's just be honest. You you get to the point where you're using like that for a lot of folks, you know, you're not thinking clearly anymore. Uh And and, and that that can cause long-term damage, you know. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mentioned that the if you avoid the bloodborne illnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but still, I mean, I just can't imagine it's a real brain cell builder, you know? <laughs> okay, we have another phone call. Um, it's a, another call from Bloomington, and DJ is on the phone. DJ? Hi, I just joined in, uh, started listening a few moments ago. I was wondering, quick question, oh, could anyone there on your panel compare for me the uh, number of deaths Per year that are caused by illegal opioid use with the number of deaths per year from legal opioid use, which I happen to know is about 16,000 annually. How, 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 that's for legal. Those are for legal opioids. You mean so, oct- yeah, oxycodone, oxycodone. Mm-hmm. and the ones that are, that are manufactured by, by Purdue Pharma and Pfizer and uh, Johnson and Johnson and companies like that. So how many how many deaths are there due to illegal opioid use, roughly? I just wonder. I don't know. I don't have the exact statistic, but I but I would caution um, I would caution us on, on looking at that because just because a drug has been prescribed doesn't mean it's been prescribed to that person, and doesn't mean that that person used that drug as prescribed or legally. So I, it's, to me, it looks like it would be a fine line between trying to determine if, you know, the oxycodone belonged to the person and they were taking it, you know, in their own prescription or if they just bought it off the street from the side dealer. So to me, a legal drug can become a street drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Moore, how many deaths did you attribute? You said Indianapolis had statistics for annual statistics. Last for this. year, there were 110. 110 in a medium-sized city, uh, one city in the... Two million. Extrapolate those are yeah. heroin overdoses. Oh, heroin overdoses. Right. I, I guess if you extrapolate that to 350 million and do some math, you could probably come up with an answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'd probably so, be reasonable. It'd probably be in the ballpark. Mm-hmm. So, and you mentioned four four heroin overdoses in Bloomington on your shifts. Right? I, I see on average about four people a year that that come in that die from heroin overdose. Mm-hmm. And what about other other opioids? Um, you know. Usually, those heroin overdoses have some uh, some form of pill taking as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that I've seen anyone just taking opioids that are mm-hmm. that are the manufactured ones mm-hmm. that has died. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I think DJ, I think your your point is, you know, there are legal <coughs> legal forms of this drug or, or drugs that you can buy. You can buy this drug legally. You can buy it illegally, and yeah. it can be bad for you either way. Basically, I guess. I guess one question that I would have is, what exactly are some of these companies doing to make to make it more difficult for those for those uh, drugs to fall into the hands of people? And and I'm a little cynical about that because I I bet the answer is not very much at all. And and we've talked about methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is the kind of thing where we could get rid of the precursor right away, stop the manufacture of it. And 
do what some states have done and almost really, really give the death blow to the manufacturer of methamphetamine. But there's a reason that that hasn't been done, and that's because it's too profitable for those companies. And I have to wonder if possibly the same thing is happening with some of these bigger pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. Now, I do know that they are putting a lot of effort into rolling back any liberalization of marijuana laws. I know that they're working very hard on that and have formed the Community Anti-Drug Coalition of America and the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. But I got to, just as a civilian here, I got to wonder how much effort do we need to be putting into marijuana when we've got some rather serious drug problems going on. And I'm not in favor of kids using marijuana. They always have. Mm -hmm. And I'm not in favor of it being easier to get. And it is. DJ, we're going to have to. But I got to wonder how much effort we we as a nation are going to continue to put into that. Thanks. We have to go. We're going to have to go. I appreciate your point. I see what DJ is saying here at the end, but we are out of time. So I want to thank our guests today, Jennifer Fillmore and Dr. Kevin Moore, for producer Lucy uh, Lacey Scarmana, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. You can find podcasts of this and other WFIU programs at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.